The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. The story is told about uh, a situation that arose during the war between the states where the Union Army was encamped on one side of a river, the Confederate Army on the other side of the river. After a day of battle, all these young men were, were settling in to try to get some rest. It was a calm that night, an interlude in the war. There just seems to be a feeling of peace in the air. Uh, but before retiring, the Union Band had to play the uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic, and in response to that, the Confederate Army would play Dixie. But then, uh, some distance away, a lonely voice began singing a familiar traditional song called Home Sweet Home. Others began to join in the singing, and before long, both the boys in blue and the boys in gray were singing together that same, the lyrics to that same song, Home Sweet Home. Just for a moment, the thought of home brought those two opposing forces together. It had that kind of impact, that kind of effect. John Howard Payne wrote the words and the Swedish Nightingale Jenny Lynn made the lyrics popular when she sang them Words that concluded the song went like this, Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. And just about all of us can recall the words of a favorite movie. For Dorothy to get back to the place where she wanted to be, what you have to remember, there's no place like home. Home should stir within us some sweet feelings. It was God's intention that home be a foretaste of heaven above. That's what he desired. I suppose for many of us, we do have some rich memories with regard to home. That's how it's supposed to be. But that's not always true today. There are those who can say, you know, home just isn't that sweet to me. Maybe you went through some difficult moments at home. Maybe some of the most serious trials you've ever faced took place in the home. And you have to say this morning, I'm not with you, Brother Grider, because home's just not that sweet a place. My memories are not like that. Well, I want to help all of us this week. Even if we can't go back and change the past, we can do something about the future, can't we? It's a pleasure last night to be in the fellowship hall and enjoy that wonderful meal. I didn't do anything to earn that meal last night. I had not taught one class here, but I was able to eat with the teachers, those who do teach here on a regular basis. And I love teachers. I love teachers because I understand that teachers affect the future. They really impact eternity. A hundred years from now, it will not make any difference whatsoever with regard to uh, what your bank account looked like, what kind of car you drove, what kind of home you lived in. What will matter, did you teach somebody? Did you help somebody along life's way? Did you help somebody go to heaven? And where do we start with our teaching? We start in the home, don't we? No better place to teach than in the home. Noah lived in the midst of a very corrupt society and 
Noah preached to that corrupt society for more than 100 years, yet he didn't save anybody, did he? Except his family. But boy, that was worth it. Don't you know he was happy that he did what was right and that his family was saved? Heard Brother Elkins say before that if, if every other man did what Noah did, there wouldn't have been a flood, and that's right. Saving our families, that ought to be a priority for every one of us. And that's the focus of our attention this morning. I was speaking to a man on the elevator just a moment ago at my hotel, and uh, we were talking about uh, the service here this morning. He was about to travel back to his home in Orlando. And I said, the only problem about preaching these sermons on the family is I have to be away from my family to do it. But I don't mind being away a few days, and I don't think they mind either if somehow, some way, we can strengthen the home. The homes of America are in trouble, are they not? Homes that are in the church today, they're in trouble. And when the home's in trouble, you can rest assured the rest of the nation, the world's going to be in trouble as well. Many do not view the home in the way they ought to view it. And there are a lot of young people today who've grown up cynical about the home, disillusioned. They have misunderstandings concerning the home, and no wonder when you consider the attacks that are made against the home today. The divorce dilemma that we face in America, shocking. It seems guaranteed that one out of every two marriages will end in divorce. And so many that choose to stay together, quote, for the sake of the children, are just enduring, aren't they? Miserable marriages. And the children live in the midst of this atmosphere and witness it from day to day. No real happiness, no real contentment, for sure. Not a foretaste of heaven to come. On top of that, we consider that children, many of them are born today out of wedlock. That's a sad thing to see and not ordained by God. Cohabitation, that just seems to be no problem whatsoever. People boast about that. Sexual relationships outside of marriage, no big deal in modern day America, just seems the common thing to do. And who would have ever thought we would come to the time when homosexuality would be, would be glorified in the United States of America. But that's where we are today. And it's being pushed upon us. In other words, you better accept it. You must accept it. Well, we're not going to accept that which God condemns, are we? We've got to stand for what is right. We've got to stand for the principles that God has given us concerning the home. And when we think about the attacks on the home, certainly we think about abuse in the home. We think about some who are left abandoned in the home. It's just a dark, dark day for the family in the United States of America, and we're struggling in this area, even in the church of our Lord. For sure, we need more preaching done on the subject. I appreciate a congregation that will ask someone to come and preach sermons on the home, and elders who ask their local preachers preach on the home regularly, and I'm sure your preachers do that. We need this kind of strengthening. We need these fundamental sermons that will help husbands and wives, parents and children. Because you see, these problems that exist in the home today, they didn't come about overnight, but they did come about because of a departure from God's standard, moving away from God's design for the home, 
moving away from, a, from principles that have worked and have always worked and will work in the future, if only we'll put them into practice. And so marriage, please keep in mind, has not failed people. People have failed marriage, okay? There are some who tell us today, why the big fuss about marriage anyway? I mean, after all, marriage has failed. No, it hasn't. Marriage has not failed people. People have failed marriage. The family has not failed people. People have failed the family. And so if the foundations are eroding, if the house is falling apart, maybe it would be good for us to point men back to the original blueprint for the home. Perhaps it would be good for us once again to consider the chief architect of the home. And who is that? That is God himself. In Psalm 127.1, we read these words, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that built it. Our Lord is a great builder, isn't he? To read Colossians 1.16, you'll find that he was the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's a great builder. You also know what Jesus stated in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, upon this rock I will build my church. And he did that. Church came into existence, built just exactly the way the Lord wanted it built. He's a great builder. Likewise, our Lord is the builder of homes. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Think about it. Was it not Jesus who stated at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto him what? A wise man. So a wise man does what? He builds upon the rock. He builds upon a solid, sure foundation. That's what we're building upon this week as we once again return to the Bible and seek divine principles that will help strengthen, strengthen the home. Now, it's very important at the outset of this particular message and this series of sermons that we consider God's definition of marriage because people are talking about that today, are they not? How did you define marriage? It's amazing to me that was not difficult to define just a few years ago and for generations past. Now all of a sudden we're juggling around all kinds of ideas trying to define the family. Well, if God is the creator of marriage and the family, the home, and he is its designer, he is the one that sustains it, let's let him define it. Here it is, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis 2, 24 the man and the woman have now been created, and God says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That, my friends, is God's definition of marriage. And no court in America can change it. That's it. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. That's God's definition of the marriage relationship. Now with that in mind, let's think about marriage here in this Bible study hour, right here at the outset of this series, and think about the wonder 
the beauty of marriage. Marriage, first of all, is honorable. It is honorable. When a man enters into a marriage relationship with a woman, if that is God-approved, and we'll consider that a little bit later, if it is God-approved, he enters into something that is honorable indeed. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all. There is something that is honorable. There is a distinction that goes along with being married. And we have found that this, this unique relationship between a man and a woman called husband and wife has been very, very stabilizing for society. For 6,000 years, it has been something that has worked. And again, no court can change that. A public referendum cannot change that. This relationship works. It is an honorable institution. Now somebody says, well, marriage is an institution, and I'm too young to be in an institution. Well, maybe you are, so stay out of marriage. You don't have to get married. We'll talk about that. But those who do choose to enter into a God-ordained marriage enter into something that the Bible says is honorable indeed. Not only is it honorable, it is good. The marriage relationship is something that is good. In Genesis chapter 1, notice verse 27 as we think about the creative power of our God. Here is what he said, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now verse 31, God looks upon his creation and what did he say? It is very good. Marriage, this relationship between a male and a female, both coming together, that's something that is not only honorable, God says that it is good. Proverbs 18, 22, whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. So marriage is honorable, marriage is good, but not only that, it is for man's protection. It is for man's protection. You see, God does not expect us to behave without control or to behave like animals. No, no. Man was not created just a little above animals, was he? But rather a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2.7. This idea that you just can't help yourself, and that's a very popular idea today, it was spawned out of hell itself. God created us to be dignified creatures. We're made in his image. And God says, I've also created you with some natural desires and I've got a special place for you to fulfill those natural desires. That special place is in marriage. Now we're not alarmed when a young man, a young woman, coming of age, begins to have natural desires. I remember when I was serving the same congregation where I'm now, I was serving them as the associate preacher, worked primarily with young people. And one of these uh, young men who's now about uh, 30 years old, married, and 
faithful member of the congregation at Forest Hill. He was about 13, 14, 15 at that time. He came to me and he said, Barry, I'm in love. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you're in love? I didn't know you had a girlfriend. He said, well, I don't have a girlfriend, but I'm in love. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I was at the mall not long ago, and you should have seen this girl in the mall. I said, well, what's her name? He said, I don't know her name, but I know she looks good. <laughs> now, that's not unusual. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, we expect our, our, our young men to talk that way, and our young ladies, they have a desire for... Uh, to, uh, to be with, uh, with, with these uh, fine-looking young men. We understand that. Those are natural desires. They're being drawn now to one another. Nothing is wrong with that. God created them that way. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for just a moment. God created the natural desires within us. As a matter of fact, the desire for physical intimacy was given to us by God himself. Now he says in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 7, concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he's talking about, in this context, a particular time of great distress. But then he goes on to say, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Well, what's Paul saying here? There are some natural desires in the male and in the female. And where ultimately are those desires to be expressed? Where do you find the full expression of these feelings? In a place called marriage. Now, here's the responsibility we have as parents. Here's the responsibility we have as a church family. Responsibility we have as youth workers, as teachers, is to help guide our young people in the direction that they need to go to help them through these difficult moments, these difficult trials, till we get them to a point where they can enter into that relationship and enjoy it in all of its purity, with all of its happiness that God intended. Nothing wrong with these natural desires, but where are they to be expressed? In the marriage relationship. And what's that for? It's for the protection of man. You think about what God's Word teaches. God is a God of order, isn't he? Everything he does, he does in an orderly way. And so in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, I say therefore in the, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for, for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, then let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn or to burn with passions, to burn with lust. There is a place where these desires can be fulfilled. It is in the place called marriage. And so I like for young people to know this. When we preach about purity, it does not mean that we are trying to keep sexual intimacy away from them, but rather we're trying to bring it to them in all of its beauty, in all of its joy, and in all of its sacredness. We want them to know where to enjoy the very best life has to offer. It is in this place called marriage where two Christians, a man, a woman who love the Lord, enter into this beautiful relationship because of the love they have for each other and likewise for their Lord. And when you can enter into that relationship, knowing you've done what's right, you've kept yourselves pure, 
God will bless you and protect you and give you something you could really, you could never really dream about. That's God's intention. Because he wants marriage and the family to bring you the kind of joy that's the foretaste of heaven above. But when society does not respect God's order, when we don't respect God's order, then chaos comes about. And friends, we're in the midst of some chaos right now in America. And particularly our young people that are coming of age, they're disillusioned and they, they don't understand. It's just, there, there are a lot of things out there that's confusing and, and they're getting a lot of mixed signals. What was God's plan from the beginning? One man, one woman for life. Now, I mentioned this is for man's protection and our Lord surely knew that. And so in Matthew chapter 19, he addresses matters that have to do with marriage. And in verse 6, Jesus says, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And then they say unto him, Well, why did, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? And Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was what? One man, one woman for life. Now, you go back to the time of creation and you recall God made the, made the man and he made the woman, brought them together. Then in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters into the picture. Isn't it interesting when, when Satan appears on the scene, what does he do? He tries to wreck a home. That's what he tries to do. And he was successful at deceiving the woman and causing both the first man and first woman to sin. But to Adam and Eve, uh, sons were born, Cain and Abel. You know that story. And also, we have the lineage of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Now remember, one man, one woman for life. That's God's plan. But in Genesis 4.19, you read about uh, one of Cain's descendants by the name of Lamech. Something interesting about him. Because here's what the text says. And Lamech took two wives. Two. That's interesting. Uh, you haven't seen that before. That was not God's intention, but Lamech said, I want two. You don't have to read but just a couple of chapters and you'll go from the sin in the garden to the destruction of man because of his sin. I mean, the whole world is destroyed by, by water in Genesis, the sixth chapter. Genesis chapter 4, 19, Lamech decides he wants two wives. Now look at Genesis chapter 6. This is the context when God would decide to destroy the world by water. And verse 1 says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives, all of which they chose. Look what a promiscuous society you've got now in Genesis chapter 6. One man says, I want two wives. I'm not satisfied with just one. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, men took as many wives as they chose, and the only criteria, what do they look like? That's it. Now, wherever you find promiscuous behavior, friend, you can note this, you'll find violence as well. Look at verse 11 of Genesis 6. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. 
That's exactly what you've got in modern day America, isn't it? You've got a promiscuous society that is corrupt and violent. That's how it always is. When you depart from God's standard, chaos always ensues. So marriage, it's honorable. It's good. It is for our protection. Third, fourth place, it is for man's joy. Did you know that? A lot of people would be surprised about that. You mean there's joy found in marriage? Well, that's how God intended it. He really did. Now, there are some people today that uh, have mediocre marriages, I guess. A lot of people who have miserable marriages. But God didn't want us to have miserable marriages. He didn't even want us to have mediocre marriages. He wants us to have magnificent marriages that are filled with, with joy. A joy that a husband and wife can bring to each other. But that depends a lot on attitude, doesn't it? My attitude when I arrive home has a lot to do with what's going to take place the rest of the evening in the household. The same is true my wife's attitude when I get home. That's going to have a lot to do with, with what's going to take place the rest of the evening. And there are many homes that are lacking in, in joy. And if all of a sudden a husband came home and decided he was going to be joyful one evening, that might shock some wives. I heard of one man who really was feeling pretty bad. He said, you know, I come in every day and he said, I kick off my shoes and I gripe about dinner and then I sit down and watch TV and say nothing to my family until time to go to bed. He said, it's time I change that. And so on this occasion, he decided he'd go work out at the local fitness center, and he took everything that he needed. I mean, he took some fresh clothes. He put on some cologne after he finished showering. And I mean, he said, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to go home and surprise my wife. She won't believe it. He said, I'm going to go buy some candy. He said, I'll buy some flowers. And he did that. He arrives home, and he says, I'm not going to pull in the garage. He said, I'm just going to park out here on the street, and I'm going to ring the doorbell. He rang the doorbell, and she comes to the door, and there he is looking sharp. I mean, he has in one hand a box of chocolates. He's got in the other hand some flowers. She looked at him. She says, you don't believe what kind of day this has been. She said, first of all, she said, uh, I got a call from one of the teachers at school. Our boy, he's hurt his arm. He hurt his arm out on the ball field. And then the washing machine went out this afternoon. And now to top everything off, you come home drunk. <laughs> well, bless his heart, he was trying to start somewhere, wasn't he? He was trying to bring some joy to that marriage, but she hadn't known any joy in that home in so long, she couldn't believe it. I don't know if that happened in our homes or not, but we've got to start somewhere, don't we? Really, the family is to be a joyful place. But that really is determined by the husband, wife, mom, and dad, whether or not it's going to be so. Home is to be not only a joyful place, but it's also to be a sacred place. Listen again to Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the marriage bed is undefiled. 
I'm going to say something, and I can say it in this class, and I think everybody that's gathered here can understand what I'm talking about. Friends, there is nothing that we read about in the Bible called safe sex. It's not safe. It's sacred. Okay? It's not about being safe. It's sacred. And when we respect the sacredness of the marriage relationship, everything that's found therein, then we'll appreciate exactly what God intended for us to have. And so I've said all of this thus far as a way to introduce what we're talking about this week. Marriage. Honorable. Good. For man's protection. For man's joy. All because it is sacred. God designed it. He is its creator. Now, with that thought in mind, go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Let's start at the beginning, since that's a very good place to start. Let's notice what happened. We've already read from verses 27 and 31 of Genesis 1. I believe really if you look at Genesis 1, you find the entirety of creation. Chapter 2 is supplemental material that tells us more about it. Just the writer expands upon what he, what's been said in Genesis chapter 1. Man and woman created during that first week of creation, uh, day 6 uh, to be specific. And then how did it happen? Uh, Genesis chapter 2 tells us how it happened. How did God create the first man? Well, he created him from the dust of the ground. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2.7. But then in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? That's the first time I've read that. Having started in Genesis 1, everything's been good thus far. I get to chapter 2, verse 18, and something's not good. What is not good? It is not good that man should be alone. What's the purpose of marriage? Some old timers might have said, well, it's to bring children into the world. That's one purpose, but that's not the primary purpose. Not the addition of children into the world, but rather abiding companionship. There's your number one priority for marriage. God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmeet. Don't you see how God loves man, cares for his every need? I'll make a helpmeet, one that's suitable for him. It will not be just like him, but it will be similar. And he will like, he will like what I'm going to give him. So let's notice what happened. In verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. I used to read those passages and I wondered, why is that stuck there all of a sudden? Right after God says it's not good for man to be alone, then all of a sudden God has Adam, Adam naming the animals. I, it just didn't seem to belong there. Oh, but it does. I believe God used a little heavenly psychology here on Adam. He's going to create something in the heart of Adam when Adam names the animals. Now, how difficult could it be to name the animals anyway? I don't know about you, but it just doesn't seem to me that that would be that hard. I mean, what else are you going to call a skunk but a skunk, right? I mean, looks like one. 
What else would you call a hippopotamus but a hippopotamus? That name fits a big old animal like that, right? But here's what happened, friends. When, when Adam's naming the animals, something happens to old Adam. Because you see, for every Mr. Skunk, there was Miss Skunk. And for Mr. Hippopotamus, he had Miss Hippopotamus right there beside him. Adam says, I don't have someone by my side. One that's like unto me, one that belongs to me. And God created in the heart of man a desire for the woman. When that desire is not there, something's gone wrong, you see. And so what did God do? Not only was God the first uh, psychologist, you might say, he was also the first physician, first one to apply anesthesia. Notice, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God puts man sleep. But when man awakens, he finds a beautiful creature that God brings to him. Isn't the language beautiful there? God brings the woman to him. God brings every good thing to us. God gets the credit. And Adam was pleased. Someone has written, and I believe this is right, no English translation of the Bible can adequately express what came from the lips of Adam when he saw Eve. I don't believe he just stood there and said, uh, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she's taken out of my side. No. Somebody said, you want the best rendering of what Adam said when he saw Eve? Wow. <laughs> he liked what he saw. This is it. This is just exactly what I've desired. He fell in love with Eve. Can you imagine what a marvelously beautiful creature was Eve? And she's Adam's wife. And so God brings the woman to Adam. God joined them together as husband and wife. Therefore, verse 24, shall a man... Leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Leave, that's right, that's the priority of marriage, did you know that? Three words I want you to see here in this passage before our class concludes. The words are leave, cleave, and receive. You say, well, I don't see receive, just look at that phrase, one flesh, became one flesh, that's receiving each other. Leave, that's the priority of marriage. It's the highest human relationship that can ever be known. Higher than the relationship you ever have with your children is the relationship you have with your husband or your wife. A lot of people don't understand that. Sometimes it's said, well, children are the hub of the home. They, everything is to be centered around them. No, it's not. Those little creatures that are called my children that live in my home, I'm just trying to help them get on out one day, right? <laughs> I love them, but I tell you, the focus of our family is not to be around them. They are the precious extensions of the love that my wife and I have for each other. And it would be a good thing for all marriages if we'd get this thing in order. 
that number one in the home is the strengthening of the husband-wife relationship and the children will benefit from that. Highest human relationship. I'll tell you this story rather quickly because I think it makes a good point. But one young lady, she was the baby in a family. And Daddy and Mom just married her off. And a couple of weeks later, she's calling when Mom and Dad are just sitting enjoying the quietness of the house. All the kids are gone now. Telephone rings, and Daddy goes in the kitchen and picks up the phone. And he's talking, and Mom can't quite hear it, you know, and he's talking to his daughter, and she's talking to him, you know, about evidently a serious situation. But he comes back in. He sits down in the easy chair. And Mom's sitting there next to him, and she said, Who was that? He said, Oh, there's a baby calling. Well, what's wrong? She said, Oh, she and that new husband are having some problems already. Well, what'd she say? She said she wanted to come home. What'd you tell her? I told her she already was at home. <laughs> That's right. She was already at home. Work that thing out. Work it out. The highest human relationship, the husband-wife relationship. A man leaves his father and his mother. And there's nothing more nauseating to see a young man who's now gotten married, but he still can't leave mama, you know? I mean, really, there's anything more sickening than that to me. Gets a new wife, but he's still got to go home to mama. <laughs> I don't understand that. Young couples will come to me and say, give us a piece of advice, Brother Grider. We're going to get married soon. I say, as soon as you get married, move 500 miles away from mom and daddy. That's what you need to do. And you understand why I would go to such an extreme and say that, because they don't need interference. They need to learn to make this thing work just as God intended and we're going to spend a lot of time this week talking about making it work because good, strong marriages don't just happen, okay? But it's the highest relationship. Leave, that's the priority of marriage. Number two, cleave. That's the permanence of marriage. I remember a few years ago, we were having some kind of celebration in our fellowship hall, maybe a birthday party or something like that. There were some balloons, and my daughter got a hold of one of those balloons. It's just a little girl, and, and, and she had that balloon right in front of her, and when it, it, it just accidentally popped, and it sliced uh, her chin and began to bleed profusely. And, of course, we, we put a towel uh, on that, that, that cut, and I told my wife, I said, you know, look, I'll just take her on to the emergency room myself. You can get the others on home. And I took her to the emergency room of a local hospital. And we, the bleeding uh, stopped, but that gash was still there. And uh, the nurse came and examined her and said, I know exactly uh, what we can do. She said, we have something. It's, it's like Dermabond glue. She said, it'll just, it'll just, it'll just bring that uh, gash uh, together again and I, just before my eyes I watched as my little girl raised her chin and, and that was it just brought the skin back together again and in no time it went healed the language here cleave unto your wife it, it's, it's similar to our idea of, of, of putting super glue on something you might could preach a sermon you know super glue marriage cleave unto your wife isn't that what Jesus said Whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so it is when I perform the wedding ceremony, I say something like this to a young couple. Make sure you understand that the vows you're making on this occasion, you're not only repeating these vows to each other, there are witnesses here who are listening to you, but above all, these vows are going up before the God of heaven, and you better be true to your vows you make before God. 
See, understand this, young people. Marriage does not come with a 90-day option, does it? No. Cleave unto your wife. And then he says this. He says, become one flesh. Receive one another. That's the purpose of marriage. So we've considered that, that the priority of marriage, the permanence of marriage, and then in that same verse, the purpose of marriage, become one flesh. What did God do? He made us different to make us one. Did you know that? And those in this audience uh, this morning, old enough to know what I'm about to say, even the physical bodies of the male and female demonstrate the two were designed for each other. That's how God created us. And so we become one flesh. We're going to talk a lot more about that because that's key. Because so many marriages are falling apart because of selfishness instead of selflessness. I'll close on this note. Before ever a wedding takes place, there needs to be two funerals. When a man and a woman die to self and ready to become what? Become one. That's the beginning of marriage. That's the beginning of a new family. And in that atmosphere, God says children are to be born. And in that atmosphere, children can be reared to enjoy healthy, productive, successful lives. As these husbands and wives, parents, get them ready to duplicate the process once they reach an age to do so. That's what we're trying to do this week is to get back to the fundamental principles of marriage. That's where we'll continue during the next hour. Thank you.